Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, glad to see everybody. Glad you made it uh, this morning. We are uh, constantly dealing with tech issues, of course. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the third horseman of the apocalypse is an IT guy in a Prius. But um, with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer because we need a little this morning. Father, we need you to be with us as we turn to your word. We pray that you would make it clear what you're teaching us. In particular, we pray that you would help us to understand how to make sense of our own failings, how to be more resilient, uh, all because we are yours in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what, what you're doing to survive the pandemic and being stuck in your house. Uh, I have blocked out for no interruptions, 9 p.m. every Sunday night to watch The Last Dance. I don't know if you're watching this. It's a 10-part documentary series that ESPN is running on the Michael Jordan-era Chicago Bulls. That is my favorite thing going on right now, is watching this documentary. It is my wife's maybe least favorite thing going on. But... Tonight is the last two hours of this 10-hour documentary. It's amazing. Um, for those of you who are not sports fans, you still probably know the name Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is generally regarded, as he should be, as the greatest basketball player ever. And uh, what's amazing about this documentary series is you're, you're kind of following his whole career, but I find the most fascinating thing is is the interviews that they do with Jordan himself. Uh, he's famously 
been pretty, been pretty, you know, closet away from the uh, media since he retired. He he's, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He doesn't talk about a lot of this stuff, but he he does extensive interviews throughout. And how he talks about his own mentality is amazing. I mean, he he says this: my mentality was to go out and win at any cost. And he was a legendary competitor, not just against other teams, but brought it into his own locker room. Uh, that at practices, you know, you oh, like Jordan always had to be the best, was always demanding the most. And uh, and, and what he said is, he says winning has a price, and leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled along. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged, and I earned the right because. The teammates came after me. They didn't endure the things that I endured, and I think he's talking about the scrutiny that he underwent uh, and just the, the fact that he was always the person that the other team was going after. Once you joined the team, you lived at a certain standard that I played the game, and I, was going, and I wasn't going to take anything less. I think that Jordan is, you know, it's kind of fascinating to, to think about his ambition, but we look up to guys like Jordan, and we look at athletes in particular because our culture is a cult of success. We talk about success and pushing through and being driven and ambition as one of the highest values that we have. I mean, one of the most obvious things that we're ambitious about, of course, is earnings, right? You want to do well. Fair enough. Some of us want to be the best in our field. You want to be at the top of your game. You want, some of us want to be the one who's calling our own shots, being our own boss. Even if you work in the home, there's still an immense amount of pressure to have the ideal home, to have the, the perfect family. The, I mean, the, 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 we, are, we are always ambitious. We always want to know what it looks like to succeed at whatever it is we're doing. The problem is that most of us fail in some way or another. And we start to realize that ambition should be made of sterner stuff than what we're made of. Whether it's your family, whether it's your career, and isn't it hard to actually have both? <laughs> uh, to actually do well in both. We often feel like we're failures. For some, you know, for some of us, eventually, failure becomes so routine that we just start to think of ourselves as a failure. And I think that this passage this morning teaches us profound lessons about failure and resilience. So think about failure. Jesus shows up, verse 1, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. He shows up on the Sabbath to the synagogue, verse 2, and Jesus starts teaching. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. There, there is another moment in Luke 4 where we get some of what Jesus taught in his home synagogue. I'm not sure this is actually the same moment. And I do kind of wonder, what does Jesus talk, talk about when he's there? I don't, I don't know. But he's in his hometown, uh, and they're not listening to him. They're astonished at what he teaches. And notice at the end of verse 2 and in verse 3, a series of questions that get increasingly more and more skeptical. 
the, at first, they're just saying, well, where did he get all this? And then they start noting maybe a disconnect between the amazingness of what he is saying and the normalcy of his life and his family. And finally, a, you know, purely ad hominem kind of uh, attacks by the end, right, that, uh, well, he's just a carpenter, and we know his mom, and we know his brothers, and we know his sisters, right? Like, clearly, he can't be that amazing, because we know where he came from. We know what he's like. We remember when he was a kid. And you might even recall that Jesus' family rejected him. Back in chapter 3, we saw, we saw this, that they, they were saying he was crazy. And so what's fascinating about this is that what one commentator calls the, the veil of ordinariness over Jesus is what they can't see through. The fact that he's just an ordinary looking man walking around, had a family, grew up somewhere. They can't see what an amazing teacher they have in front of them. Despite the fact that there are miracles even going on. So there's two effects from that that are pretty clear in this text. One of them is that Jesus can't actually help that many people. Did you notice that? Not that many are actually healed. Because this is a routine. Jesus asks people if they believe in him. They believe in him. They trust him. And that's usually when they're healed. And because so many refused... They, wouldn't, they couldn't receive the healing that he had to offer. But the other thing that's pretty amazing is that Jesus is said to marvel at their unbelief. Jesus is pretty unflappable. Jesus doesn't get surprised by a lot of things that are going on. I don't even know if surprise is the right word here exactly. But he is, he is shocked by the amount of unbelief. And I think that in some ways, what Jesus must feel is the rejection. It it isn't too much, I think, to say that Jesus feels the weight of his failure here. That might sound a little bit (laughs) strange to talk about Jesus failing something. And I don't mean that he doesn't have the power to accomplish what he wants. I mean that the rejection. Because there are lots of different forms of failure, right? Uh, we know a lot of these different experiences. One of the strange things about meeting with Harvard students for so long was that I had, the, I had on several different occasions the odd, uh, the odd meeting where I sat down with a student. And, and, and literally, they were, it was right after they had just received their worst grade in their whole life. In fact, my first semester on campus, I remember sitting with somebody, and, uh, and like she, she had just come from class and had received the first, you guessed it, B in her whole life. And she started crying in Starbucks uh, as I'm sitting there as a brand new campus minister and have no idea what to do. And, uh, and this young woman is just weeping over a B. Now, I, I mean, it's funny in some level, right? But it was profoundly meaningful. She had never gotten anything less than an A in her whole life. And all of a sudden, 
some verdict of a lesser performance was passed on her. Sometimes we think that we can handle a situation. Sometimes we think we've got what it takes to make it. Sometimes we think we can do this or that task, and whether it is a home improvement task around your house that suddenly is a lot more in-depth and a lot harder, and they always take more time than you think they will. They, you know, you, you are, you're, we find the limit of our own resources. It might be your, your job. You take a new job thinking, I know how to do this. I'll be great at this. And you suddenly find you're in way over your head. There are, there are plenty of times where we fail because we simply don't know what we're doing. We simply don't have what it takes to know how to, re, to get through this. And, you know, some of the worst problems we face uh, relationally, are when people won't actually recognize their failings. You know, it's kind of one thing to, it's one thing when a job at your house gets out of, out of hand and it ends up taking hours longer than you thought it, was, it would. It's another thing when you refuse to recognize how you hurt people around you. So sometimes our failings are because we lack the resources. But sometimes it's situations that are simply out of our control. Uh, I remember a few times where, in, in the military, where my department head didn't take responsibility for things, and I ended up looking like the, <laughs> the guy who had dropped the ball. Uh, one, I remember one particular case where I had told my department head we should do something. He said, no, we're going to do this other thing. And then as we were standing in front of the XO, and he was yelling at us, <laughs> uh, and he turned and asked me why we didn't do this, my department head was silent. And I didn't have, really have any other choice but to stand there and kind of take it. Uh, there are plenty of times where our lives are unfair. Some people, you know, have, are born into certain families. They have certain privileges growing up, right? And you may not have those. So sometimes you don't get as far as others because you're, you simply didn't have the advantages. Sometimes it's actually an injustice. Sometimes there's active evil that you're pressing up against. And so we fail because things are out of our control. And no matter how much we think we can get our lives under control, we never arrive at that point. There is always more that we can't predict, that we can't know, especially the hearts of other people. And I guess that gets to the third way in which we experience failure, and this is more to the point here with Jesus, is rejection. Because it is one thing to sort of not have the resources in your own tool belt. It is another thing to have a situation that's out of your control. And it is another thing when someone rejects you. When someone personally pushes you away. Uh, the thing about rejection is that it is always individual. It is always about you. That's why the worst breakup line is, it's not you, it's me. Because <laughs> of course it's about me. That's why that's a lie. I mean, this is what's so risky about romance. This is what's so uneasy about friendships. This is what is so devastating about, uh, about 
problems in a marriage or in a family that just go undealt with for so long is the rejection that's possible, that builds. And we're scared of all these different things. And we fail in lots of different ways. Now, the weird thing is that there's a lot of, especially, especially self-help and business literature that has started to talk about failure a lot more. And uh, in a little book I referenced a while back called Seculosity, and David Zoll points this out. He says, one of the shrewdest triumphs achieved by the cult of productivity has been the fetishization of failure in evidence over the past decade or so. Whether it be young parents detailing the short, their shortcomings on the internet in the name of keeping it real, young entrepreneurs misappropriating Samuel Beckett's injunction to fail better, or best-selling pastors writing books about falling forward, failure has never enjoyed a more positive profile as it does today. But, he goes on, the careerist endorsement of failure sounds liberating until you realize that no one is actually being let off the hook for their deficiencies. We are instead annexing those shortcomings for the sake of our self-justification, tolerating and in some cases advocating for failure because of its potential fruit, success. I mean, this is the devious thing. When we talk about failure, when you hear somebody give a TED Talk about how their most shameful or embarrassing or difficult thing that happened to them helped propel them to success, is the thing is, while they can see that now, they didn't know that then. While maybe it helped them get to where they were going, you don't know right now. And when we're, when we're failing now, when you fail today or tomorrow or later this week or, you know, five minutes from now, whenever it is, the failures that you experience, you don't know what the outcome is. You can't see the ends that they're going to reach. And so the challenge of failure is that is a crisis of identity. The reason that we hate failure so much is because it challenges our sense of who we are. Look, some of us by personality and temperament are more ambitious. Some of us are goal setters. We like writing down our five-year goals, 10-year goals, getting those on paper and going after them, right? <laughs> some of us love that. Some of us are just more aggressive, right? We don't even need to write down five or 10 because we're always driving on to the next thing, right? We're always go pursuing whatever it is that's the next thing we could do. Some of us are a little more laid back. We're not quite that geared that way. We're pursuing things that just interest us, and when we lose interest, we move on to the next thing. But whatever it is, we fail a lot. You see, the thing is about failure, though, is that some people fail and they use it as a moment to reassess, and others fail and become bitter. You see, the problem with all that literature encouraging you to embrace failure is that they don't talk about the guy who's just amassing grudges. The guy that you have a beer with, and all you hear about is all the different people that slighted him, that let him down, 
that failed to live up to what they should have lived up to. And there are plenty of us. Actually, all of us nurse some grudges, don't we? And some people are so incapable of reassessing their lives that that simply is a defining feature of their personality after a while. But some are, learn to reassess, right? Learn to recognize that maybe my identity shouldn't have been in what I was trying to accomplish in the first place. Maybe my sense of self shouldn't have been built around all of that. Whether that was career, whether that was family, whether that was friendships, whether that was that budding romance, that in fact that was shaky ground to begin with. So the possibility of failure is the possibility of reassessment. And really the question, if you want a kind of diagnostic question, the question is this. What do you refuse to lose at? What is it you refuse to lose? Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there are things that we're called on to protect, right? If you're a parent, you're called to protect your children. And don't get me wrong, there are all kinds of things in our lives that we know would be painful to lose, and we don't want to lose them. But what's non-negotiable? That's the question. What is it that, what is it that when it's challenged, you can hear the record scratch, and everybody in your family goes real quiet and realizes you've touched a nerve? And that you're not going to lose an argument about that. Or you're not going to fail to get that thing done. What is it? What is that nerve? That's a, such an essential diagnostic question for our lives. What is it we refuse to fail at? Because the minute you find that, you start to find where your identity is most fragile. But Jesus, interestingly enough, on the heels of his failure, decides to send his disciples out. He's going to begin to teach them what resilience looks like. Look at it this way. Jesus has, has already noted, look, even in your hometown, maybe especially in your hometown, if you're a prophet, you're going to be rejected. And then so he turns around and he sends the 12 out. They're going, they're going out on a missions trip. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is the moment, right? Isn't that strange? Because Jesus seems so successful everywhere, right? He seems to be, you know, while, yes, he keeps butting heads with the religious leaders, but all, there's all these healings and all these crowds are following him. And the moment that a town sends him away without success, that's when he decides he's going to send his 12 out. And that, that's, that just strikes me as weird. And in fact, he even admits in verse 11, they'll probably experience rejection themselves. And I think it's no mistake, right, because Jesus is teaching them how to take risks for the kingdom. In fact, they're supposed to they're supposed to take risks. Did you notice what he says in verses 8 and 9? Don't bring any money. And don't Basically, don't bring any provisions with you. Just go. Don't even bring a spare 
<laughs> a spare set of clothes, right? Like, just bring your own tunic, one set of sandals. I mean, how quickly are a set of sandals going to wear out if you're walking everywhere on dirt roads, right? Don't bring any of that. Don't bring money. Don't bring bread. Don't bring anything you need. Just go. Jesus is sending them out to take massive risk. But, and this is key, he teaches them resilience by giving them three things. He gives them partners. You notice that in verse 7? He doesn't send them out alone. He sends them out two by two. He gives them a message. And actually, we don't hear him recounting that, but what they're doing in verse 12 is going out and repeating the same thing he had said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he gives them a message. And then third, he gives them an identity. Because he gives them his authority in verse 7. But just, let's just think through these. First, the partnerships. This is the most tangible thing that God gives us to make us resilient. Period. It is, it is, what, you know, is what you can put on your calendar that you can, you're going to meet up with, with others in the church, right? That you can reach out and touch them normally, not when we're in the middle of coronavirus, but normally you can <laughs> actually hug them, pat them on the back, encourage them, right? Face to face. We'll be back to that before too long. But the truth of this is, right, that when we talk about the gospel and we talk about what Christians ought to be, we often imagine it primarily in individualistic terms, but it's never meant to be that. No Christian is meant to live the Christian life on their own. I mean, no person is meant to be alone, for one thing, but what God builds is a kingdom. There is no kingdom without a people. It is never just sort of you and God. And one of the the lies about a kind of spiritual but not religious age is the delusion that we can actually grow on our own. A do-it-yourself spirituality is problematic for at least that reason. To think that you'll, you'll actually grow just doing your own thing. Because it's not, while there is an individual experience to the Christian life, it is not individualistic. It is not siloed off from the experience of others. And I think anybody who's grown in maturity as a Christian knows that they actually learn a ton from other Christians. If you haven't found that yet, it might be a good sign that you've got some growing to do. Because one of the things about failure, and the reason that this is so effective in building resilience, one of the things about failure is that it's failure is so isolating. Because what do you not want to do with your failures? Talk about it. You don't want people to know. And of course, when those failures are moral fail- <laughs> failures, you know others will judge you. I mean, right or wrong, <laughs> they're going to think of you differently. And one of the most profound things about the church is that there is a sense in which the church is called to keep each other accountable, right? And talk through, deal with moral failings, but it's also called to, we're also called to encourage one another. 
You see this all throughout the New Testament. In one of the most tragic turns, when someone drops the ball, especially when we're talking about a moral failing, is when we turn in on ourselves and shut ourselves off from others and start to distance ourselves in fear, of course, that we're going to be judged, in fear of having to talk about our failings. But what we actually miss out on is the encouragement, the resilience to return to who we are in Christ and to press on. We miss one of the key ingredients to being resilient. We miss the partnerships that we're given. So Jesus has no category for the Christian that is alone, but rather the church to encourage and to build one another up. I mean, that's so key to resilience, isn't it? Second thing that he gives is the message. And notice this, this is, a repent, this is repentance because the kingdom is at hand, because the king is here. So this is a message about Jesus, not about us. The message that we are given, the reason it is good news is not because our lives are better than others. It is because Jesus is better than everything else. And this is one of the difficult things <laughs> in some respects to get our heads around, especially in an evangelical subculture, is that we have talked so often about evangelism as sharing your testimony. And there is, of course, a lot that's good about that. If what, if what you're talking about is your encounter with God, if you're talking about your encounter with Christ, that is great If you're talking about even, you know, it's even appropriate to talk about ways in which you've been changed, but it is so easy for that to stray, and so often has in evangelicalism, into a subjective personal testimony of self-help, right? That this is how I got better. This is how my life got straightened out, right? Which, of course, is kind of, well... I mean, how do you react when others tell you that you could have the pretty little life that they have? It's insulting. I mean, for one thing, I mean, Christians aren't perfect, right? Like, it's actually part of our confession that we're not perfect, right? Uh, so, of course, if you are trying to lay out your pretty little life in front of other people, there's a massive pressure to be fake, and more than that, I mean, other people sometimes just don't want your life. Like, they just would do things differently. And so when, when our message becomes about our lives, we have lost track of it. Instead, what Jesus gives them is the message about him. Because the possibilities of the gospel are about Jesus bearing up our failings about Jesus living the life that we did not and could not live. It is about Jesus living, dying the death that we deserve. It is about Jesus definitively accomplishing on the cross what we needed. The message isn't about you and me being the best people we could possibly be. If you want that, go to Tony Robbins. 
If you want that, listen to Oprah's podcast. If you want, if you want that, there are plenty of other places out there that are going to tell you how to be the best version of you. The good news is that Jesus is better than all of these. Is that the Jesus is better than the best version of you. That Jesus has done everything that we needed done on our behalf. That's the message about Jesus. That's what they had. They were resilient because they weren't talking about how perfect they were. And we know how messed up the disciples were. They were talking about the king that had arrived. And the third thing he gives them, and of course it's deeply related to those others, is that he gives them an identity. You notice that he gives them his authority. They're not going out on their own authority. They're not trying to drive out demons and heal people because they're amazing. No, they have a new identity in Jesus. And the problem with our failures that are, you know, is that they're, as we have said, they're always rooted in our sense of self. And if you think that your life is worthwhile because you're really getting ahead in your career, well, guess what? Your identity becomes more fragile the more you succeed because you have more to lose. Because the further you get, the more that you can be taken away. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. If you build your identity around your friendships, when there are bumps in the road, when somebody slights you, you're going to feel like you're not worthwhile. When you build your identity around finding the romantic partner, when it doesn't work out, you're going to feel like a failure. When you build your identity around parenting, and it's not going perfect, which is every parent out there right now, it's not going perfect, you're going to feel like a failure. And when your family doesn't look like the perfect family, you're going to feel like a failure. When your kids talk back to you and yell at you, you're going to feel like a failure. If you build your identity around impressing other people, you're going to feel like a failure. Because you have so much to lose, because everything is so fragile from minute to minute. You're always sizing up whether you are worth it. And look, whether you are in your 50s or whether you are 15, you don't want to live that way. Because it is torment to constantly be having to gauge, does everybody think that I'm doing well? Does everybody think I'm worthwhile? And what Jesus says is, you have my authority. You have an identity that is unshakable. You have an identity in me that no one can take away. People will reject you, they're rejecting me. It's not about you. I am giving you an identity. You are secure in me. And it is unshakable because Jesus never turns away from you. Because Jesus endured everything for you. And you never have to ask yourself, 
Am I loved? Because the proof of it is in Jesus' hands and feet. You never have to ask, am I acceptable? Because Jesus is at the throne of the Father. Saying, I bought this one. You never have to ask if the Father loves you enough because he sent his Son for you. Look, if, this, if you haven't believed in this, this is why it's such an unshakable identity. This is what's so amazing about the gospel. Is that you can be a person that doesn't have to gauge your worth on what other people think of you. That doesn't have to gauge their worth on whether you've succeeded or failed or in all you know or some kind of weird calculus of your successes and failures and how they balance out. You can be done with that. And if you are a Christian, this is why you can be resilient, because it is about the identity you have in Jesus. It is about the message that He's given you that's not about you, that's about Him. And it's because He's given others to walk with you to encourage you, to strengthen you. You are a child of God. There's a, there's a similar situation. The Gospel of Luke tells us about this situation where he sends out the 12, and then a little later in Luke 10, he, he sends out a bigger group of 72 followers. And when they come back, they tell Jesus, hey, look, we did all these amazing things. There were demons being cast out. People were being healed in your name. And Jesus celebrates with them. But then he says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us deal with our failures, failures our failings, our uh, our sins, not by doubling down on who we think we're supposed to be. Not by doubling down on our own constructed sense of identity. But rather being confident that in Jesus we have everything we need. That we are your children. That your love is unshakable that Jesus' work can never fail. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.